Welcome back to another School of Science Radio. I'm Gino Ganello, joined as always by Matthew Chandler. And um, this week, we're joined by a special guest, Alan uh, Fihili, is it? Uh, Fihili, yeah. Fihili, Fihili. Okay, perfect. You know, just got to make sure we get it right. Um, Alan's a uh, Seville-based journalist, writes for La Liga Lowdown, host of the World Football Index European Football Show. Um, he's written for multiple Everton sites, such as the Blue Room and Prince Rupert's Tower. Alan, how are you doing today? I'm grand, boy. Thanks very much for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be uh, chatting about Everton, as always. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, you know, unfortunately for, uh, for Everton fans, you know, it's been, uh, it's been a little bit less uh, fun the last month or so. But we'll get into that a little bit. But before we get into any really stuff about Everton in specific, let's talk about you a little bit, Alan. Tell us a little bit about how you became an Evertonian, you know, some of your favorite players, memories, just a little bit of your background and how it relates to Everton. Yeah, well, basically, like I'm from Ireland, as you can probably tell by Maxon, I'm from Cork in the south of the country. It's kind of the second city in Ireland, like Dublin is the capital, and then Cork is a bit different. It's a bit like Liverpool in many ways in terms of its kind of cultural identity and its kind of specific kind of vibe down there, you could say. Um, basically, I became an Evertonian because my father, my father was uh, also from Cork, and one day he was watching a match with his brothers, who was Leeds Everton, in the late 1970s to mid-1970s. He was only maybe eight or nine years old, and basically his brother and all his brother's friends were shouting for Leeds, and he felt sorry for Everton, so he said he shouted for Everton, and then it stuck, he stayed with them. Um, and then obviously, he, when he was 16, 17, 18, Everton hit their, their peak in the mid-80s, and they were winning titles and winning European trophies too and then uh, I was born in 95 and I was actually at the FA Cup final my dad was at the match with his friends my mom's in London uh, like shopping basically and I was in her, her belly like oh, she was pregnant with me so I was in London for the game um, but I wasn't born till a month later and since I was born we haven't won anything basically but um, but yeah I've always been Evertonian I'm a massive Evertonian like growing up I was always the only person in my class in school who was Evertonian everybody else is an Arsenal fan or a Manchester fan or a Liverpool fan or a Chelsea fan so I was always the kind of the odd one out but um, we went over every season twice a season sometimes and uh, I just love the city love the club and it's kind of carried on through adulthood basically like it's kind of an important part of my uh, my identity they pissed me off I'm oh, sorry they can you curse in this or no? Yeah, no, you're good. You're good. Don't worry. <laughs> they piss me off when they lose, which is too frequent for my liking. But then when they win, especially when they win derbies or when they look like they're putting together a, a European run or a cup run, then it's it's brilliant. Like, you know, so, so yeah, I love the club and it's an important part of my identity, but it's also a difficult part of my identity, to be honest. Like. Yeah, it's the same, I think, for a lot of us, you know, I, you know, uh, since I was born, same, you know, we haven't, <laughs> I was born in 95. So when Everton won the FA Cup, they won the FA Cup about two months before I was born because I was born in July. So since then, it's been, you know, just all downhill from there. And like similar to you, it's, you know, yeah. even over here in, Amer in America, a lot of people root for the Man United's, the Chelsea's, the Arsenal's, the Man City's because they're very popular. And, you know, I, as you can tell, you know, you mentioned the fact that I'm wearing a Texas jersey and I, I you know, I live in Jersey. Um, you know, I'm not one that likes to root for the popular teams. So, um, you know, uh, I, I, I can definitely feel that and feel, you know, I guess I think we all can feel the pain 
um, <laughs> being an Everton fan week in and week out. Uh, before we go any further, Matthew, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm all right. I mean, it's quite nice to have, uh, you know, a different voice on, I guess, and, and also nice to have a weekend without without any sort of Everton you know, disasters um, after the last few. Um, I quite like international breaks now in a way, because, like, I don't – it's, like, quite a good time to sort of switch off from Everton and just kind of not have that same stress for a weekend at least. Um, but I think, like, once this – eventually ends like this international period you kind of want to get straight back into it with full next week don't you but um well i was going to ask alan was it would it be like too predictable i guess to say like your favorite players are like coleman obviously or i don't think any of the irish players we've had james mccarthy played for the irish was new york aiden mcgeady maybe not (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, um, well, for me, to be honest, my favourite players have always been Tim Cahill and Mikel Arteta. Like, they were my, yeah. when I was 10, it was that 2005 team and they finished top four and I just loved Tim Cahill and Mikel Arteta. And, like, my most intense years, the kind of formative years as a fan was when they were playing at the club together. So I just loved the two of them. But obviously, I love Seamus Coleman too because he's kind of, a, not just like a, a very good footballer, but he's a great personality too. And he's Irish captain, of course, like, but... <laughs> But if I was to pick my favourite player, I would definitely be Tim Cale, I think. He's just, out of his kind of attitude and his spirit, like, and for me, he was kind of the go-to, like, character I always kind of, like, associated with everything, you know, and he always would be as well. So, he's my favourite. That's a good answer. I like that answer. (laughs) Um, All right, let's, you know, let's get, let's dive into it a little bit. Let's go in, you know, head first here and and dive into some, you know, obviously, Matthew mentioned we're on the international break. Um, So, a lot of Everton players out. Um, on international duty. Um, we're recording today. Uh, today's November, what, 15th? Yep, November 15th. Um, we're recording about, you know, noon Eastern time. So, um, you know, obviously some games on the, uh, you know, on the international states still haven't been completed. Um, but as of right now, uh, we'll start off with France and Portugal. Um, France lost 2 nothing. Um, or, or excuse me, uh, they lost 2 nothing against Finland, um, where Dean played the full 90 minutes, um, and then Dean was an unused sub against uh, Portugal in, in France's win over Portugal. It's actually Portugal's first home loss um, in, I think, six years, they said, which was um, pretty crazy. So, obviously, a big feat for... Without Dean. <laughs> yeah, without Dean, unfortunately. Um, Chank Dosun played 63 minutes, won a penalty, and scored a penalty in Turkey's uh, 3-3 draw against Croatia which is about on par considering we talked about last week how we didn't think Chang Tosun had it. <laughs> so he goes out there and he scores a penalty and, and wins a penalty and does something for Turkey. Um, Gilfie Sigurdsson played the full 90 minutes and scored a goal in Iceland's 2-1 loss against Hungary and the UEFA European Championship qualifiers. Um, Keane played the full 90 minutes and Dominic Calvert-Lewin played 63 minutes and scored a penalty in England's 3-0 win against Ireland. Um, I'm sure you could talk a little bit about that, Alan. Um, Coleman did not play. Obviously, pulled his. Um, uh, he was pulled out of squad for um, you know a, re- a recurrence of a, of a hamstring injury. Uh, Alex Awobi played the full 90 minutes and scored two goals in Nigeria's 4-4 draw against Sierra Leone in their African Nations Cup or Cup of Nations qualifiers. Uh, Nigeria was up four nothing in that game and uh, um, managed to draw that. Uh, I'm not sure how that happened. Um, James Rodriguez played the full 90 minutes 
Yeri Mina played 89 minutes and received a red card in Colombia's 3-0 loss against Uruguay in the um, 2022 FIFA World Cup qualifiers. Um, also in those qualifiers for um, Cotton Bowl, Allen played the full 90 minutes and Richarlison played 76 minutes in Brazil's 1-0 win over Venezuela. And then finally, Robin Olsen played all the 90 minutes in Sweden's 2-1 win against Croatia in their UEFA Nations League game. So a lot of Everton action this weekend. Um, do you want to start, Alan, with the Ireland match and, and kind of get that one out of the way? And we'll, we'll go from there, discuss a little bit about, you know, the England side and, and, and Ireland and, and what, you, what you saw there. Yeah, sure. I think that, you know, it wasn't a surprise, first of all. Um, the Irish team at the moment is quite weak. Um, and especially with all the absences through injury and through COVID as well. Uh, so going to Wembley to play a very strong, kind of very kind of loaded England team, you could say, it was always going to be a tough task, but especially given all that's going on at the moment and the fact that we're coming off an unsuccessful qualification campaign for Euro 2020. And just kind of a bad energy at the place at the moment. I think we need to just have that tournament out of the way and start kind of fresh with Stephen Kenny in charge for the World Cup qualifiers. Um, and obviously missing Seamus Coleman was huge too because he's such an important character in the squad as well as a player, you know, like he's the most experienced player. He's played at the highest level for the longest time in the squad. He's been an Everton player since 2009. Um, so like, like the Ireland players have, you know, untried youngsters. We don't have a goal scorer. We have championship level players. We have very bottom half Premier League level players. It's kind of a mixed bag, to be honest, you know. And like coming up against Jane Sancho, um, Jack Grealish, who was wasn't even he's making his first competitive start for England in the next game, I think it's remarkable. Like you know, um, and also that was a subplot actually because like Grealish, uh, Declan Rice, and Michael Keane all played underage level for Ireland in the past, and they went to England for the senior careers. So it was, it was a big bone of contention, especially with Declan Rice because he kind of proclaimed himself to be an Irish person, and like, he was born in England, but his parents are from Ireland, so. It's kind of questions of identity, but it's also a bit raw because we train these players coming through in the youth system. Um, and then they go to England for their senior careers, you know. So it was kind of a difficult game for an Irish person, to be honest. Um, but then obviously as an Evertonian, it's good to see that Calvert-Lewin scoring goals, uh, Michael Keane keeping a clean sheet. And obviously Pickford didn't play, but I think he's still the number one choice goalkeeper in England, you know. Is, is Coleman still, I know like you said he's really important to the Irish team, he's captain, but is he still, like, their first choice now? Had he, has he lost his place to Matt Doherty by now? Or is he still kind of... It's a bit complex because, like, Coleman is the kind of character who really responds to adversity well. Like, at Everton, for instance, they brought in Gibral Sidibe at the beginning of last season, as you both well know, to replace him. You know, that was the idea. And he fought back and outperformed Sidibe. And as a result, they didn't sign Sidibe, sent him back to Monaco. And Coleman is our first choice right back this season, undisputed, you know. And with Aaron, it's kind of similar. There was a lot of murmurings for a long time about Matt Doherty because he was playing so well at Wolves um, for him to come into the Ireland setup and start it right back. Uh, the first thing they did was against Gibraltar and Nick McCarthy's first game in, for the 2020 qualification phase. Uh, they played Doherty in the right wing and Coleman right back. Which just didn't work, to be honest. They couldn't. They, they weren't occupying the same spaces as they did at club level, and it created problems. So it just it was a failed experiment. Um, so then Coleman was the first choice still, and then when Doherty earned the move to Spurs, he kind of gained profile because he was playing for a so-called top six club. So he started um, Stephen Kenny's first games uh, as a right back. 
But then at the same time he started at right back and displaced Coleman. Coleman was on the bench for the first time in many years as an Irish player. Coleman was tearing things up at James Rodriguez in the right flank. You know, so once again he got to a situation where he reclaimed his place in the starting eleven after losing it. You know, it, I, I, I like. I think it's a great testament to his character because that's twice at club and country level in the last 12 months he's been dropped for somebody else and he's managed to come back and win it back. So if he was fit, he would have been starting um, against England. Yeah, he's, he's, he's the undisputed captain once again. You can't keep him down, like, you know, literally. Do you think that um, also, you know, the fact that obviously Doherty, I'm pretty sure, has competition over there in Spurs – Obviously, like you said, he's the undisputed starter for Everton right now. And when he's healthy, he'll play. Does that obviously play into some of the decision-making over there too? And the fact that, you know, week in and week out, Coleman's getting minutes while Doherty may not be getting the same minutes over at Spurs? Or um, is it mainly just because of how well Coleman's been playing? Well, I think before he went to Spurs, it was down to the system he was playing at Wolves. Because at Wolves, he was kind of playing in a very specific wing-back role, wing back, yeah. and he was playing in a team that knew its roles very, very well, whereas Coleman was kind of more versatile, he's playing in a four, he's playing in a three, so I think that Mick McCarthy saw Coleman as a proper old-school full-back, um, who could also perform as a wing-back, but he was a full-back first and foremost, and also McCarthy was always going to err on the side of caution in terms of having a more experienced international there as opposed to a more unproven player, you could say. So yeah. that's what my argument always was. When people said Doherty should start for Ireland, I always said, listen, he's playing in a, a very specific system for Wolves. So we don't know how Formula 4 are in a less kind of organized team, you could say. And um, his defensive du- duties are as a wing back are obviously yeah, less, yeah. yeah, less, less important. Yeah. Of course. So. Yeah. But, um, and yeah, I think the fact that he's playing week in, week out now for Everton does give him that extra bit of credence, especially the way he's been playing, mm-hmm. especially in the early games of the season with Hammers in the right wing. I thought they linked really, really well. And there was like jokes like Colombian Twitter because like <laughs> Seamus is James in Irish. Hammers really? is James. It's just the <laughs> Spanishification. There's no name, hit James in Spanish. Like Hammers yeah. is really just the way they pronounce James, you know? But then the way it's come back is that in the English speaking world, we call James James because that's what the Colombians call him. So it's funny because if these two, they were calling him James Coleman, you know, it's just, there's no link there. So I think like, if the boy of them are fit, I think it's a very potent right wing, to be honest, like, you know, and I, I understand why if you're an Irish coach, you'd be wanting to pick him, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, any other games stick out to you? Any, you know, obviously you just talked about James. I don't know if you saw Colombia's 3-0 loss to Uruguay. Um, but if there were any other games that we talked about that did specifically have Everton players in them that stood out to you or any performances uh, that you saw that stood out? Um, well, the Colombia game is obviously the one, yeah, um, because like all my work is in Spanish football, so I spent a lot of time going through the kind of Spanish reports of that game, um, and they were pretty damning of Colombia. It was their worst defeat in 82 years on home soil, um, and they got properly battered by a very, very good Uruguay team, to be honest here. A nice blend of like youth and experience. But for Everton, like the sentiments in the Spanish press was very much that it's kind of almost like an Everton curse that's been putting them, you know? Like they're both playing poorly in the Premier League for Everton. Yerry Mina was just dropped. James hasn't recovered from his injury well. And that, you know, they've kind of carried on that form with the national team, you know? So aside from that, I was hoping that Luca Dean would start for France against Portugal, but he didn't start, obviously, as you mentioned. Um, and I also saw that Sigurdsson scored. I was keeping an eye on that game. 
which I find interesting because, you know, it, it always seems to be scores for Iceland, but uh, not for everything, you know. He scored a free kick, which he hasn't scored any of for Everton. Yeah, that's a remarkable stat. I can't, it's hard to believe he's never scored a free kick for Everton. I know. We've had quite a good international break, really, apart from Colombia, I guess. Because obviously, I think you said, uh, didn't you, that Rodriguez was at fault for one of the goals or something, and Mino obviously mm-hmm. sets off. He was, he was, Mieri was a fall for one of them, Hamas the other, and then Mina got sent off as well. Like, so, yeah, well, I mean, apart from that, I mean, Iwobi scored two good goals for Nigeria, and um, Alan Richardson got minutes for Brazil, Michael Keane, obviously, Calvert Lewin scoring another penalty. Um, Richardson also scored actually for Brazil. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. He actually scored a goal and he was brewed out for offside, um, because Renan Lodi was offside in the build up, but he actually did get on the score sheet. He didn't try and nick it off Roberto Firmino again, then. <laughs> what yeah. about um? I, I don't know if you've you caught any of this game. Um, Robert Olsen, Robin Olsen, excuse me. Um, also played the full ninety in Sweden's two-one win over Croatia. Obviously, it's a pretty big win for Sweden, being that Croatia obviously um, they made it to the semis of the or the final, excuse me, of the the World Cup. Um, <laughs> You know, did you were you able to catch any of that Sweden match? Um, and if so, did you um, kind of take anything from that game in terms of Robin Olsen's performance? Uh, no, I didn't see that match. Um, but you know, I guess it's all in the kind of fine print, isn't it? You get the clean sheet. So I think what like what I saw from Robin Olsen with Everton was that he's a kind of a safe pair of hands. He's kind of a calm presence, which kind of juxtaposes against Jordan. You know, he's a bit more. Reckless, and for me personally, I think a goalkeeper should be that kind of calm, serene presence because you need to have faith in your goalkeeper. The back four needs to have confidence in him. So uh, I'd be interested in seeing him getting more minutes for Everton going forward. To be honest, I know that's uh, that's music to to Matthew's ears for sure. We've had this discussion time and time again on the podcast between who. I mean, you know, obviously, I think it's not without um, without good reason though to to question whether Olsen should should be, um, the, you know, getting some minutes for, for Everton. Um, I mean, you know, really right now, you, you mentioned it, Pickford's kind of a head case in some senses, and that's not what you want in goal. And, and you know, like I've said, me and Matthew have talked about this at length. And, um, you, know, I, you know, I think Matthew's a little bit more, um, and he can, you know, tell you, um, he's a little bit more um, – leaning towards Pickford sitting for a little bit longer and putting Olsen back in for a little bit just to give Pickford some more time off. But um, I don't know. We'll see. I think Olsen is making a good case in, the, in what he's done for Sweden so far and, and the, the one game he played uh, for Newcastle. Uh, Matthew, anything you want to add about the international break that you saw um, that you particularly um, you know wanted to point out or you thought was interesting? Um, just the, I think the scheduling of it is kind of ridiculous. Um, like I'm, I understand like they have games they have to fulfill and competitions they have to prepare for. But like, I don't really understand like why, for example, England had to play Ireland during. I know like it's not the same amount of travelling as say, um, you know, Richarlison and Allen have to do or Mina and Rodriguez, but it just seems kind of unnecessary to have a third game in in like a two week break when you've already got a really compressed. Domestic schedule. So, like, I was having a look, and, and we could have as many as like six players still yet to play their last international game by Wednesday. Then you've obviously got, they've obviously got to get back. 
and then we've got Fulham on Sunday lunchtime. Um, on Tuesday, you've got Iwobi playing in Sierra Leone, uh, Colombia playing in Ecuador, and, and Brazil in Uruguay. So, you can imagine like the not not jet lag necessarily, but just the sort of fatigue that those guys will have. And I think, you know, maybe there is a link between, say, like players like Rodriguez who kind of had a downturn in form, kind of linked to sort of fatigue because if, aside from anything else I think he's he just looked really tired the last few weeks um, probably since the last international break um, and you know we um, we don't have so I had a look between we played Chelsea on the 12th of December and then United on the 6th of February and in that eight week time slot I think we got like one midweek without a game so considering the amount of um, matches we're going to have to play I don't really see why we have to have like an extra I understand the international I understand why we had an international break I just think an extra friendly and like extra games just seems unnecessary when you've already got like loads more players picking up soft tissue injuries um, I think the quality of games has kind of diminished in the last few weeks from like sort of the goal first that we saw the first few weeks um, I just think it was pretty avoidable yeah, I completely, I completely agree with you, but I think it's it's ridiculous. Like um, scheduling is already too much. I think like apparently teams aren't even working on tactical instructions. They're just literally playing, resting, and playing. You know, they can't train or work in, you know, the tactical yeah in details. Like, so. I think it's bad because, like for instance, Alan Brown, who's an Irish player, yeah. uh, deposited for COVID after the game, and uh, he played the ninety minutes. Like so. You know, and then also in the Croatian game, I don't know if you saw, but um, Vida, I think his name is something Vida. He's kind of the yeah, center, yeah, center back, the center back, I think, right? Center back, yeah. He actually they did a test on Monday. They played Tuesday night in the match. Yeah. And that word on Tuesday night that he was a possible positive, so that he was like he wasn't negative. If you understand what I'm saying, so there was a chance that he was either positive or it was kind of a obfuscated test so they actually took him off at half time because that's when they figured that this out so he, he played the first half and then came off at half time because he was a positive a possible positive and he was positive so it's kind of just a bit mental you know uh, it's just a crazy situation i don't think international football should be happening at all but especially not friendly games yeah so, uh, i mean luca dean and uh, that Fulham game next week could be his i think 16th game of the season already or it could be Calvert-Lewin's 17th. I think both yeah. of them played like more than a thousand minutes since the start of September, which is just mad. Just and you mad. think what it's going to be by Christmas could be you know, easily double that. Mm. Um, I just don't think, and you know, especially with the travelling and you know the different restrictions between countries at the moment um, because of the pandemic. I just think it's nice to have a break from Everton, I guess, but um, there are maybe more sort of productive ways of spending that break and making players fly all over the place for meaningless games. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. All right. Um, you know, we're going to take a quick break now, uh, but coming up after the break, we will uh, get into kind of the Everton season so far and um, what Alan thinks of it, what we think of it, and uh, we'll, we'll break it down for you guys. So just give us a little bit of time here and we'll be right back. 
All right, back now with a little uh, review of what Everton season has looked like so far here as we're on the international break. We're, what, seven, eight matches in? Um, something like that. Um, there it is, eight matches. Um, Everton currently sit in seventh place with uh, four wins, one loss – or one draw, three losses. <laughs> They've scored 16, um, conceded 14. Uh, they're in the EFL Cup quarterfinals, which will be a home match versus Manchester United on December 23rd. Um, obviously, Everton's form started out really well. Um, since then, it's been uh, a little different. Um, Matthew did a roundtable uh, on for the site of some of the other writers, but we haven't talked to Alan about it, and I was also not in the roundtable. So I think Matthew's going to take the lead on this one um, as we kind of break down Everton's start to the season. Yeah, so like every so often we do these roundtables, don't we, where we email other guys at the site and like ask them a few questions about things like transfer windows or, you know, um, season reviews and things like that. So I thought we would do one just for the international break, looking like looking back at the season so far, see what people have made of it. I thought we could do it on, on here with obviously Gino and uh, Alan. Um, so yeah, there's seven questions, so I thought we'd just go through them. Um, first one, which I put in the round table, was what would you rate Everton's season or start of the season out of 10? Um, well, for me, I would say... Uh, it's between six and seven, I'd say. Six and a half, maybe. Because I think that the start was so good, obviously, but the decline was so steep and so shocking. And then at the same time as that decline, you saw clubs like Southampton and Leicester City especially kind of coming up the rear and they don't have the same noise around them, but they're developing really, really well. You know, I don't know if you saw Leicester's defeat of uh, Leeds uh, a couple weeks ago, Monday Night Football, and like Leicester were superb. Like, and they're still missing players from injury too. But the way they kind of attacked Leeds, they were very, very savvy, very dangerous, very lean and quick. I was really impressed by them. So I'd say six and a half to seven because I just think that like, while the last few games were shocking, shockingly poor, I think that if we do get a bit of positive momentum back, we'll be back on track quicker than we think. You know? And I think that the absence of Richardson was huge. And I think that his absence led to kind of the poor performance against a very good Southampton team. And then that led to kind of a negative spiralling of events where we were missing players and playing badly. And I think that Everton are a club that really rely on momentum because when the momentum is good, we're getting Spirit of the Blues in the top of the charts. Everything's great around the club. You know, we're creating this new fan base in Colombia. But when things are going badly, it's the worst thing ever. It's kind of like the bad side of being a big club because when you're a smaller club, you can develop bit by bit, little by little. But when you're a big club, historically, you have expectation that you're finally on the right track. So I think kind of almost like you can like trip yourself up running downhill. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, I for those reasons, I, I, I'm giving them a seven. Um, just because, like you said, um, there have been injuries. Obviously, missing Richarlison has been huge. Um, and I think for the first, even even the Liverpool match, obviously, we didn't win that match and probably didn't play as well as we would have liked to, but still it was a, um, you know, it was a draw. And, and if we went into that match and said we were coming out with a draw, I think we would all have been happy, especially at 2-2. Um, if we were going to give up two goals, um, you know, we would have been happy with the draw. 
Um, since the Liverpool match, I think we've scored two total goals. Um, and we've given up, I think, eight or seven. Yeah, seven. So, you know, I, I think that there's, um, you know, obviously, like you said, the, the missing of Richarlison is huge. Um, I think he brings an extra – we've talked about this. We haven't won – Everton haven't won since uh, – with Richarlison out since Richarlison signed for Everton. So he clearly brings something important to the team, and I think he brings um, – w- with him in, in the squad, we get a little bit more of an unpredictability about us, and I think that that certainly helps. I think we saw a little bit more predictable Everton side over the past few weeks. Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, Fulham – you know, I think with Richarlison back, if we can, you know, obviously Coleman will be out, so that will be a loss um, for sure. Um, or we think he will be out. He was he was pulled out of Ireland, as we mentioned before, for a recurrence of the hamstring injury. Um, but with Richarlison back, I think that adds a significant boost to the squad from the past three matches, and, and we'll we'll see how much how much we missed him and how much he brings to the team uh, moving forward. Yeah, I gave him a seven. Like I think. We, I think we had the same number of points, but like hadn't won four games in a row and then lost three. I think people will be like more measured about it and more positive, probably. It's just the way that we've kind of amassed that points to at least kind of what's left people kind of on a bit of a downer at the moment. But I think mostly, for the most part, we have improved on last season. It's just um, obviously you see like the deficiencies of the squad, you know, when certain players are out or are injured. Um, but uh, next, the next one was what was your high? What's been your highlight of the season so far? Um, well, for me, I'd say my highlight is kind of a bit of an obscure one. It's when they were playing West Ham in the League Cup, and Michael Keane kind of turns and like launches like a, a Franz Beckenbauer like overhead ball, a long ball over the top, came down to uh, Cavalou and he kind of killed it really, really well turns and finish really, really well. I just thought it was a brilliant goal, but also kind of underlines Michael Keane's confidence because I think he's very much a player who's reliant on confidence in the season. He's playing with a bit of kind of arrogance, a bit of uh, self-belief that we've never seen from him really, I think. So for him to have the balls to kind of turn like that and play that kind of pass and do it so well, and then for Cavaloon to have the skill to take it down and finish, I thought it was a brilliant piece of play. And it was the kind of moment where I was kind of thinking, whoa, this could be a proper team here because not only do we have new signings are performing we also have these old players who are actually becoming new players almost because of this new confidence that Ancelotti's brought to the team so that's my favorite moments personally that's a great choice you know yeah um I think I go back to the very first game of the season the Tottenham match away um I think getting a win away especially the way that they played um how they controlled the game the confidence that that probably gave them over the next three matches to carry them through that first international break um, I mean, that was probably one of the better matches we, uh, the, uh, we've seen from an Everton squad um, in a very long time, especially on the road against a quote-unquote top six side. Um, we went in there, we controlled the possession, the midfield looked dominant, um, and I think that was a really good start to the season. And, uh, you know, obviously there's been some other really big points, you know, Calvert-Lewin, you know, just scoring at will um, has been great. Um, but I think that that first game really set the bar for the and really you know gave them confidence to carry them through the next few games and you know I think that that first game kind of uh, is is a big reason why we had such a good start because we went out there and we didn't play scared we we went at a top six side and went 
their way and, and won a game where we kept a clean sheet. Um, we probably could have scored more than one goal, probably should have scored more than one goal in that match um, and just played really well. So that would be my highlight of the season so far. Yeah, I went for the same Tottenham game. I just thought it was the most complete performance. Um, like I've said before, I think a lot of our wins since then have kind of been too kind of frantic, whereas we, that was like such a controlled performance defensively as well. And um, obviously to get that kind of away win at the top six, Monkey off a box, I think it was um, a real, I guess, a, a kind of... Um, a kind of an injection of self-confidence as well in showing the players like what they what they can do and, and how well they can play as a unit. Um but on the on the other on the opposite side, what's been your guy you guys what's been your biggest disappointment of the season so far? Uh I would say it's a Newcastle game, definitely, because I think coming back from the Liverpool game I was always nervous because it would be it's the kind of game that everything will lose, you know, like coming off the back of an emotional game, having Luca Dean was in for that game, wasn't he? Or was he injured? Which game? The Southampton game. Luca Dean. Southampton game. He was... Luka played, yeah. Yeah, he yeah. was sent off in that game, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, sorry, right, yeah. So we were missing Richardson for that game. It was the first game of his three-game ban, obviously. And I just felt like we could be in trouble because Southampton are a good side and they showed it. They played really, really well. They played us off the park, to be honest. We looked sluggish. Um, so that was fine because I kind of half expected it but to go to Newcastle afterwards and play the way we did with the defensive lineup in the midfield especially the lack of kind of creativity it was just shocking performance and it was kind of a lack of resilience that they didn't come back from that disappointment at Southampton it really really depressed me to be honest like it kind of made me think oh no here we go and it made me really worry and uh, kind of it brought back the fear that is so used, so kind of part and parcel of being an Evertonian. And like, I let myself get excited. I've been disappointed so many times, but I got excited after the good start. But uh, I was let down again. But I think the point earlier about Sharrison is really good because I think that like, when he's not in the team, we're, we miss that kind of disruptive presence for the defence. Because what he does, the way he plays, he's so aggressive and kind of tenacious and kind of on the front foot. He creates like uncertainty and and fear amongst defenders and it causes them to doubt their decisions and pulls them out of place. Whereas when he's not there, they can pay more attention to someone like Hamas and really kind of block Hamas down tactically because they know that there's no other creative threat coming from anywhere in the kind of middle lines, you know? So I think that when Richardson isn't there, we lose far more than one player. We lose, like, the whole team goes out of whack kind of in, in terms of his composition, you know? I think it's a, he's a massive loss, like massive loss. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think that my guess would be Matthews is the same. Um, mine is the same as yours. Um, the Newcastle game, for the same reasons. You know, it's the Southampton match you go in, and, and Southampton was playing well, and you expected them to have a tough time, especially without Richarlison. Um, and it's easier to stomach, but going into Newcastle, a team that hadn't been playing well, um, had had a lot of trouble, you know, really in every game that they played, they, they had a lot of trouble all over the pitch. Um, and just, I, I think that's the first time we can really say that Carlo Ancelotti got it wrong when it came to the starting lineup. Uh, because I think that maybe, you know, obviously we don't have a lot of faith in the, the Bernards, the Wobies on the wings, uh, you know, they've, every time we play them or start them, they seem to disappoint. 
but I still think that, you know, going with whatever it was five central midfielders um, playing that match, you know, it was, um, it was the wrong decision and it led to what we saw um, in that game. And, and, and it's a game that we, sh- you know, could have won out of all the three games that we played without Richarlison, we should have gotten three points from that one. Obviously you can understand against man United, even though man United was, you know, not playing well. Um, they have the quality of player to go out there and, put together a good performance. Um, Southampton had been playing well, but Newcastle hadn't been playing well. Um, they don't really have better quality on the pitch, like on paper than we do. Um, and I think that's why it's the biggest disappointment so far this season, because um, it was a very winnable game. And like you said, Alan, it takes you back to the times where we go into those games that are winnable and all we have to do is win the winnable games and then we'll worry about the top six games and we can't win the winnable games. And that's, you know, why we fall into the same cycle that we've been in for, you know, 25 years now or whatever it is. So um, that would be my disappointment of the season so far. Yeah, I think I went for the kind of the action which I think precipitated this kind of loss of form, which was Richardson's red card against uh, Liverpool just because I just felt it was a completely needless tackle to make on Thiago. And um, while he didn't cost us in that game... I just feel like he hasn't solely cost us in the last three games because, you know, we have more good players than just Richarlison and we should be able to get results without one player. But um, like you guys have said, we just, we, we just look a completely different team without him. Um, I'm kind of worse in every every facet of our game, I think. So um, I'm not blaming him solely for these defeats. I just think that is what is kind of... Is, what kind of set in motion, I think, the last three uh, results. But I would say the Newcastle one is definitely the biggest disappointment in terms of results, just because, yeah. like you guys, I think kind of half, we have a terrible record at Southampton anyway, but I think we kind of half expect maybe to have a tough time there with the form they're in. But, and obviously United have, you know, some very good individual players, but Newcastle was the one really where, you know, that, that midfield and, and, you know, the team that we were playing against, I think you expected a lot more. Um, but which player, the next question, which player has surprised you the most this season? Um, I would say, I think that Magakin could be a shout. I think he's played well so far this season. But I think Decorley is a really good signing, actually. I'm really happy with his performances. Like, I was obviously excited by James coming in because he's James Rodriguez and he's a world-class footballer. But And then Alan, like, we also the clips of him celebrating those challenges and he's a Brazilian I have a soft spot for Brazilians personally, like, and I just love kind of his passion and his style and his kind of aggression. I love it, like, but uh, I think Decore's ability to kind of break from midfield and kind of provide penetration and energy and his speed and his strength is something we haven't had in the Everton midfield for a long time. And I think that if you have a functioning team, he can do a really, really good role in that team. You know, like, he's not like a one-man team. He's not going to change games in his own, like maybe Bruno Fernandes will, but he will perform very very well in a very in a, in a, in a well run team if that makes sense i think he showed that before the run of form changed i think he was really really good and a really really good surprise for me personally was he the one out of the three of them was he the one that you were most pleased about signing i think he was for me i know rodriguez likes it it's the more exciting one but i think the was the most kind of necessary of the three of them i guess yeah and alan too i think i think we needed a holding player as well definitely so i think Alan's kind of 
tenacity was very valuable too. But I think, yeah, I think our midfield will be missing pace and missing strength for a long, long time. So to have somebody like the Corey in there, he's a very valuable addition. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I would agree. I, I think Decore has been fantastic, and just his, you know, box to box ability uh, has been great. But for my, um, which player surprised you most? And and don't shoot the messenger here, Alan. But I'm going to say Seamus Coleman, not because I didn't think Seamus Coleman could do it, but it's a nice surprise, a pleasant surprise to see him continue to perform at the high level that he is performing at. I think there was a lot of questions going into the season about whether or not we should stick with Coleman, whether he would be able to, you know, get through another year or, you know, whether we needed to sign somebody who could sufficiently back him up um, this year. But I think he's gone out there and shown week in and week out when healthy, of course, because for the past few games, we're not sure if he's been healthy because he's had this hamstring injury, had a couple injuries that he's been dealing with. Um, But I think he's been a pleasant surprise just seeing him still have that pace, still have that ability to just charge forward. And you just notice the difference between him and John Joe Kenny, or if Ben Godfrey was playing at that right back, you notice the difference between those players um, and a Seamus Coleman. And I think, um, again, it's not that I didn't think he could do it. It's just, you know, a nice surprise, a pleasant surprise to see him continue to do it at the level that he's doing at. And, you know, just to, you know, kind of be a little different here. I think that's the, that's the player that I'm going to go with. No, you've uh, kind of stolen my thunder there, you know, because I went for Coleman as well. I, just think <laughs> I, I didn't uh, read it, I promise. I didn't read it no, yet. No, so. <laughs> I, I haven't really rated Coleman for the last few years because I think I just felt like he's been on kind of this uh, downward trajectory really since maybe like the end of Martinez's era, really. Um, the injury really isn't it, like, yeah. The injury didn't help, but I think even before then, I think he kind of, Obviously, that first season with Martinez was amazing. He was amazing, but I think, and it's kind of a very extreme high. But I think since then, um, maybe since the second year under Martinez, he was he was pretty good. But since then, I just think he hadn't really been the same player. I never really rated him as a defender. I thought he, he was really suspect defensively and, and a lot better going forward. Um, but now I think he's a much improved defender. He's probably not quite as as quick. He's not lost his pace, but he's not as quick maybe as he was. Um, but um, I think his defensive games come on really well. You see the way that he's like nullified players like Sadio Mane and Son in the last few months. Um, and I think of the goal at Crystal Palace where he set up Calvert-Lewin showed that he's still got something to give going forward as well. So um, I think in a way, Coleman is like the biggest testament you can pay to like good coaching. Because it just seems like Ancelotti has got managed to get the best out of him, where like previous managers didn't or couldn't. Um, so it's been really nice to see a kind of renaissance with Coleman's in Coleman's career. Um, and you know, he doesn't like he doesn't fly forward like he used to, but I think he's he's a much better defender. Which, as a defender, is quite important that you know how to defend, isn't it? So um, I've been really pleased, uh, you know, in the main from what I've seen. I don't think he's fit though, so. Um, I thought it was, you know, disappointing at United, but then I, I'm not sure he should have played, to be honest, because it looked like he was rushed back. And clearly, uh, I mean, he got that yeah, yeah. An injury in Ireland. So, uh, yeah. But I think just to just to add to your point about defence, I think the biggest testament to his defence was how he locked down Son in that first game against Tottenham. I think that, you know, for the most part, you know, he, Son is a pretty scary player when he's coming forward. And I think that other than a couple, you know, shots from outside the box, 
son didn't really do much and he, he kept him quiet. So I think um, that's just one of the biggest testaments we've seen this, this season, just to, to Seamus Coleman's defense. Okay. Next one was um, what do you think Everton's midfield should be? Cause obviously we've tried a lot of different players in there with kind of limited success. Um, what would be your guys midfield three, midfield two, midfield five in the case of the Newcastle game, if you like, uh, what would you go for? Um, well, for me, I think it comes down to either you're playing a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1. So I think for the 4-3-3, say if you're having Hamez on the right and Richardson on the left and Cavaroon up front, then in midfield, I think our best three midfielders are Alan, Decore and Gomez. Um, and if it's a 4-2-3-1, then potentially I shift Tamez into the middle and play someone else on the right. Uh, maybe and then have the two lads Decore and um, Alan sitting in midfield. Who would be your right midfielder? That, that's the problem. You see, we don't have one. Well, no, we got rid of the only one we had, and even then, that was Walcott, wasn't it? So yeah, um, like so, I think that like for me, ideally, I think we should bring in a midfielder in January. Isco is being linked; he's picking up pace. I personally think he'd be a very good signing. If we if we did sign him. I play him in the middle with Decore and Allen just in front of them. Yeah. And then have uh, Hamas on the right and Micharis on the left because I love Gomez as a person, but I just don't think he's good enough. I don't think his personality is of a top elite player. I think he's too kind of withdrawn. and I don't think he responds to conflict well. Mm-hmm. And I think if he's ever stretched, he gets exposed badly. Like he's a good range of passing. He can break from midfield well, but I think he's not a top, top player. Yeah. Um, like his best spell, his only consistent spell as a professional was with Valencia back in 20, uh, 2015, before he signed for Barcelona. Um, and basically he was playing in a two midfield with Danny Parejo, who was a really experienced uh, Spanish centre mid. And he was just sitting and then Gomez could break when he wanted to. But he was in a very kind of safe space and teams were kind of going at Valencia. So they had the strength to kind of battle, back them up. It was the time of uh, Nuno Espirito Santo was in charge of them. So they were a good Valencia team. Um, but aside from that, he's never really had a consistent run of games. He comes in and out of the Portuguese team. Even at Benfica, he was always a young player. He's never had a proper season where he's a proper baller in the middle of the park since that season with Valencia. And I don't think he will, to be honest. He's 26 at this point. I just don't think he's going to be a top, top player. So if he could sign Isco, personally, that's who I play alongside the Correa and Alan. Do you, um, do you think... Firstly, do you think the Spanish league is slower than the Premier League, or is that just a myth? And also... If you do, do you think the Premier League is too quick for him? Okay. Yeah, I think it's definitely smaller, uh, slower, I mean, sorry. Oh, yeah. um, in a way, if it makes sense, because the ball moves at a very high speed, but the players are less physically robust. Like, like Gomez is six foot two, so he was towering above all the Spanish midfielders. He looked like a centre-back playing in centre midfield, but he had the mobility to move as well. Um, which really stood out in the Spanish league whereas in the English league I think the levels of fitness are higher especially in midfield and I think you need to be able to do more things in the midfield so I think that yeah I think if you're playing a 38 game season with no winter break and you're playing the kind of football that's more competitive off the ball you could say more to do with the second balls as opposed to your actual construction of play I think it's definitely more difficult for him to play in England compared to Spain yeah I think um I agree on, on Gomes. I think he's kind of carries this uh, nonchalance in, in midfield where it's kind of like 
he takes for it's like sometimes he takes forever on the ball or it takes forever to turn and pass or find that pass and it's like it, it's just like it needs to be a little bit quicker and I'm not sure he has that next gear like you mentioned um but based on our current midfield uh, I you know the if we have everybody healthy, I would put Gomesh in, in the four three three with with Ducore and um and Ducore and um Allen in the midfield. Um again, like you mentioned, <laughs> the ideal midfield by January would be Isco um up, you know, in that in that role or or playing above Ducore and and Allen. Um obviously that would be ideal and and like you said, reports have come out consistently saying that Carlo Ancelotti is pushing for this deal to happen. So we'll see if that is actually true. Apparently Real Madrid are ready to sell the ring winger for somewhere in the fee of 20 million euros or pounds or some sort. Um, so that's obviously, I think if you can get him for that price, I think, you know, it's a similar to the Hamas Rodriguez situation before we thought he was free or before we realized he was free. Um, you know, I think it's a good, bit of business to get him in and I think he adds to the quality of team right now so that Ancelotti can go out and find a younger um, more uh, viable option to replace him when the time comes um, but for right now I think Isco is is that that guy um, but again the midfield I think should be um, Ducore, Allen and Gomesh even though I don't like Gomesh as much up top or above them a little bit or playing in that midfield three Sigurdsson just hasn't worked out and um, I'm not sure we really have anybody else on the team that, that really um, could play that role efficiently. Yeah. yeah. I would like to see maybe – sorry, Alan, are you going to – Just one more thing in Isco. It's kind of an interesting kind of perfect storm of things because Isco's out of the Spanish team. He wants to play in the Euros next summer. So he needs minutes right away, basically. Um, he's very, very good friends with James Rodriguez from the time around it together. They were really good mates. And also, Ancelotti's first signing around it coach was um, Isco. And in the first season, they won the Champions League together. So he loves working under Ancelotti. So he was a perfect, like, in a storm of things that everything needed midfielder. Real Madrid is trying to get their wage bill down. Their wage bill is something like 280 million euros a season. And they need to drop it significantly. Um, so they're trying to cut their wage bill. Everything needed midfielder. Isco needs minutes. It's kind of a perfect storm, you know. So I hope it happens, personally. Yeah. yeah. Mine for the time being would maybe I'd quite like to see Alan move next to Decore because I don't think playing as like a holding midfielder really suits him. I think you saw that against maybe United and um, Newcastle. Um, but so maybe obviously Gabarman is the one where you think he's like the obvious candidate for that holding role when he's fit. But I think maybe for now. Could try maybe Ben Godfrey there. He's played there a lot before, um, albeit at a lower level. But um, seems like a more natural fit there than anyone else we've got, maybe apart from Fabian, Fabian Delph. But then people don't seem to like Fabian Delph, do they? So um, <laughs> it wouldn't be a very popular choice. But I think when Gabamin gets back, it would be Gabamin holding, and then Allen and Gomez, uh, not Gomez, Decore. Otherwise, I would probably go back to the three which started the season: Allen, Decore, Gomez, just because. It worked well then, so you know why why fix what wasn't broke. Yeah. Admittedly, Gomez's form since then has been terrible, but um, seems like the, the best kind of working solution we've got for now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, what else would you guys change if anything after after the international break? Then about Evan's sort of setup or lineup. Is there anything else that you 
or you know anything else for you to work on particularly or any personality you would change particularly going into his next run of games um well i think it depends on injuries doesn't really because we're kind of unclear about who's fit and who's not fit um i'd like to see Olsen get a run of games because i think that like he wasn't brought in to sit in the bench like he's brought into play so i yeah. hope he'll get a run because i think that at the very least, he could take some of the pressure off Pickford in terms of you know his mistakes and kind of the whole aftermath of the Van Dyke situation. This the kind of people sending him abusive messages on Twitter and the bodyguards being brought in to protect his family and all that kind of stuff. So I think if I could see Olsen get a run of games, it'd be interesting. And uh, not saying he should replace Pickford, but I think to take the pressure off Pickford, give Pickford a break, to kind of time to reset. Um, and then also the centre back situation is interesting because, like for me, my favourite centre back at Everton is Mason Holgate, and he's the best centre back at the club, and the most promising too. Like he's still only in his early twenties, but the way he progresses the ball, his aggression, his arrogance, his leadership, I think it's unmatched in both um, Mina and Keane, but also in Godfrey. Um, so I think, but at the same time, I don't think he was fully fitting as Man United. Like I don't think he, I don't know how he came back into the team straight away after being out for so long. I think it was madness, like you know. So I guess to figure out who is the number one starter alongside Holgate, because Holgate's playing the left side of central defence, and then either Mina or Keane would be in the right side. So figuring that partnership up early as soon as possible, and um, like we said, getting the midfield right, and then I just think keeping the attacking three refreshed in terms of the substitution that we bring on because we know who the three starters are. They're undisputed. You know, Hamid, Richardson and Calvert-Lewin. We're just working with the balance of getting game time for Anthony Gordon and also using Iwobi and Bernard well because I think Bernard and Iwobi have good attributes. They're not bad players, but they're not good enough to start for Everton and they never will be. So I think that if we can find out how to use them well as subs, it would be of the benefit to Everton and for them as well, you know. Yeah, I think, um, again, I, I agree with the Mason Holgate point. I think that um, if he's not fully fit, we should go back to Yerry Mina and Michael Keane for the time being, or Godfrey if you feel like one of them is too slow and you want to have that extra bit of pace um, that probably Godfrey would bring at that center back position. Um, other than that, I, I'd like to see maybe, again, I mean <laughs> – we have been, or at least I have been beating the drum for Anthony Gordon to at least get some substitute minutes. Um, so I would like to see him get, you know, if we're going to switch up, you know, put on some substitutes, maybe give him a shot. We've also talked about um, instead of trying Chang Tosun as a backup striker, maybe trying Ellis Sims. Um, I think that might be a good option. Um, but in terms of starting lineup, I think it's, it's strictly, um, you know, I'm not ready to give up on Pickford or move Pickford out yet, but I can understand I, I wouldn't be opposed to it, I guess I would say. You know, I'm not, you know, my uh, – the point I made on last podcast was that he didn't do anything to make you want to pull him in the Manchester United game. Um, and, and, you know, he's already – you know, he's got confidence issues to begin with. Um, so to pull him in the um, – in the game against Fulham after bringing him back for one game, it would, I, I think that might screw with his confidence a little bit, but again, it's, it's a matter of, you know, are you willing to give up points possibly um, to make sure a guy's confidence is good? So uh, the situation at goalkeeper is very, I, I'm very in the middle about it. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to, I'm not sure I want to move on from Pickford just yet for the time being, but 
I wouldn't be opposed to Olsen playing either. Um, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm happy I'm not the one making that decision. I'm happy that's Ancelotti. Um, but, yeah, again, center back I think is the biggest thing, and um, I would agree that Holgate is our best center back, but if he's not fully fit, he's not um, – he, he won't help us, <laughs> basically. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Mine were pretty much the same. I would give Olsen a run of games, and then I would also decide – what the best sense about pairing is because I don't think it is Mina and Keane. I think, like I said before, they're too similar. And um, I can understand why Ancelotti brought Holgate back because he's the best sense about goal. And also, I don't think he particularly rates Mina. That's the impression I get. And also, it, you know, it's not like Mina and Keane have kept a load of clean sheets together. I'm not saying all the goals you can see have been their fault, but it's not like we've been particularly solid in recent games with those two in central defence. So, uh, I can understand why he went for Holgate, even though maybe in hindsight it didn't prove the best decision. But I think my impression is that Keane and Holgate is the best that we've got as a partnership at the moment. So um, it's like it's like with any kind of you know partnership or pairing. The more you play together, the more you know it breeds consistency. And I just think you need continuity there. I think chopping and changing, same with goalkeepers, is is going to do anyone any good really. He needs to decide what his best, his first choice is and stick with it. Um, but last question uh, I put on here was what's the minimum, what is the minimum accept, acceptable points return from our next three, which is Fulham away, Leeds at home, and then Burnley away? So I went with nine, just because I think we won these games at the start of the season with not a lot of fuss. And we've got everyone back now, bar maybe Coleman. And with the kind of daunting fixture list we got in Christmas, at Christmas, I think if we're, if we're serious about our ambitions this season, I think these are three games that we need to win. Um, so, kind of goes against the form book, but um, for me, I think we've got to look at nine out of nine for these. Um, don't know if you guys agree. Yeah, I think for the Fulham game, I'd be as confident as you can get as, as an Evertonian that we'll win that game. I think Fulham are probably the worst team in the league, the weakest team in the league, I think would beat Fulham, to be honest. Um, regarding Leeds, I'm a bit warier of them. I think they're a good side. Um, I'm happy that it's at Goodison, not at Ellen Road, but uh, I think it could be a draw, to be honest. Um, I wouldn't balk at a draw. I think to lose to Leeds would be damaging, to be honest. Though. Um, and then Burnley are Burnley. They're always going to be tough. Tough is basically yeah. the result. But... Uh, we have a pretty good record there in recent years. I remember the 5-2, was it two seasons ago? Yeah, Boxing Day, yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think we'll personally be seven. I think we'll beat Fulham. And I think we'll either beat Leeds or Burnley. But I wouldn't be surprised if we drew either of those games. So I would say seven, between seven and four points is what we'd get, I think. I'd be amazed if we got nine. If we got nine, I'd be delighted, but I just don't have the confidence right now that we will. I understand why you think we might, because on paper we should, but I just don't have the trust in this team yet, recovering that well from the past few weeks. So yeah. hopefully they do, but I, I'd be surprised if they did. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say the minimum acceptable points would be would be seven. I think that we should beat Fulham, and I think we probably should beat Burnley, just because I feel like Burnley hasn't been the Burnley of old um, so far this season. I feel like defensively they've been a little shaky typically or more than they typically are. 
Um, so I think we should get three points from both of those. And then again, I'm with you on leads, Alan. Um, they can score and our defense has been shaky at best. And I can see this one finish in like two, two and um, being a draw, which again, I would be perfectly fine with if you told me the next three games, we get two wins and a draw after losing the last three. Um, you know, I, I think I'd be happy with that just to get things back on track and, and the confidence back up before we go into that, into that daunting stretch. So it would be, I think seven for me. But if we, if we drew with, this is my only point is if we drew with Leeds, like I know it's, I know it's, you know, it's kind of an extreme example, but say like the Derby, I think most people were kind of happy with a point in that one, especially in the way we went. Um, if we drew, with say like any like at any of the top six for example I think you'd be fairly happy with that if we if we drew at home to Leeds would you be kind of happy with that or you know away at Burnley I guess it depends on how the game goes of course but yeah. just like you know what I mean I, like I think I just feel like these are the kind of games which you win and I, I almost feel more confident about playing teams like Chelsea at home in December or Arsenal at home in December than some of these next three that we've got just because like how prone we are to slipping up in them, but um, I think if we if we like really want to make a statement of intent, we can need to go out and win all three. To be honest, yeah, I just think uh, that like we did with so fun. No, it's been like you know the way we you know like we we did with West Brom, Palace, and Brain at the start. I think we need to kind of replicate that again. People will start taking it seriously again because it's these kind of games that we haven't won in the past, which is why I think people haven't taken it seriously in the last few years. Yeah, I think it's like kind of stopping the rot too, isn't it? Like it's like kind of getting, stopping the blood from flowing. Like, you know, you just stop losing games is the biggest thing for me right now. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like if we're serious about top six, top four, we should be winning those games for sure. But yeah, I mean, I think we, hopefully we will, but like I just think, I don't know, I, I, I just can't see us winning nine to three of them, but. We should be winning three of them. We have this team to do it, but I just think given the confidence and the way the momentum is at the moment, my priority is to avoid defeat at the moment as opposed to being going hunting for victories. You know? Yeah, I, I think, um, like you mentioned, Matthew, it's those games that you typically slip up against. And, and I don't know, just I guess looking at Leeds, seeing how, how they've scored and whatnot, it just kind of, for me, screams... Everton slip up just because of, you know, their, <laughs> the power they have going forward and whatnot. But I mean, again, like you said, if we want to be serious, we have to win these three games. But I think if we're talking about very bare minimum acceptable, I think seven points from, from the next three games would, would be okay. I don't think it's the end of the world, but um, if we lose any of those three games, I think we're looking at a little bit more, even if it's six points rather than seven, I think it's still, you know, we will be disappointed. Matthew, anything yeah, else? Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I mean, I agree with you guys. I just think, you know. Yeah. We need to get back on track now, really, especially. Can't make it four defeats in a row, especially that'll be just yeah. catastrophic. And that's something we don't normally do, so. Yeah, w- one game at a time. We'll take it one game at a time. Let's be Fulham first, and then we'll worry about um, worry about, worry about the rest of it. Um, that's all you have, right, Matthew, for those questions? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, um, all right. Well, Alan, I um, – I think this is it. We appreciate you coming on. We appreciate you talking with us. We loved your insight, especially into uh, the Ireland national team and kind of how Coleman fits in there and, and his whole progression there as well. Um, you know, we wish you the best of luck with everything you have going on. And again, thank you for coming on.
Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. And um, I'll be happy to come on again if you ever need me. I enjoyed yeah. it. I had a good time. Nice yeah, yeah sure. we, we would love it. We would absolutely love it. Um, otherwise, we're going to take a quick break. Um, we're going to come back and talk a little bit about that Fulham match coming up with um, somebody from a Fulham podcast by the name of Farrell Monk. Um, we'll be right back after this quick break. All right, welcome back. And, and now we are joined by another guest, um, Farrell Monk of the Fulhamish podcast. Um, he's usually, usually, we usually do the opposition view uh, through writing, but this week we decided, you know, let's throw it in the podcast this week. And um, he's going to be talking with us a little bit about Fulham and, and, and how they've uh, progressed through the season. Obviously, Everton playing Fulham um, on November 22nd. Uh, that's this coming Sunday. Um, at noon, uh, British Standard Time, 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, their last meeting between the two teams, uh, Fulham won 2 nothing back in April. Um, so far this season, Fulham have played eight. They've won one, drawn one, and lost uh, six. They're in 17th place, but before we get into any of that, any of Fulham, Farrell, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Can't complain, can't complain. Um, are, you in, are you in the same boat as us where it's quite nice to have a week without your team playing for once in a while? Considering how the year has gone so far, um, <laughs> sometimes it is nice to have a week off. Um, but yeah, it's been quite, it's been quite a chilled weekend in comparison. Not, yeah. not uh, trying to sort of make sure that everything for the podcast is in order and all those sorts of things. Um, so yeah, it's been a, it's been a pretty chilled, chilled weekend in comparison to how it usually is. <laughs> We had a terrible trip to Fulham last time, I remember, because I think Fulham had lost like the last nine or something. Um, I remember going. I remember going to our game and then was having a beer at half time, and then I remember coming up the second half, and Tom Kearney scored inside like the first thirty seconds, and I just completely missed the goal. I didn't even hear anything. Well, uh, yeah, that was one. <laughs> Um, yeah, that was one of the few games I actually missed uh, that year, which was kind of annoying considering a terrible, terrible time that we had that season. And also, it's quite, it's quite funny how, um, you know, now that we're back in the Premier League after a two-year two -year absence, it's uh, quite funny how every time that they go, the last time that these two teams met, it's, it's always usually been Fulham lost the game. X, whatever. <laughs> and it's like, this is probably the first time this is like, oh, the last time Fulham played played X team that was actually a 2-0 victory. I think it was actually the first game that we'd uh, played after they got relegated or and yeah. um, suddenly it was all the shackles off. I think the best comparison at the time was Fulham are now just the team and uh, like Fulham are now the horse in the, like in the Grand National that <laughs> is going jockeyless and just ruining everyone else's races. <laughs> um, but I mean Fulham obviously started the season really badly with those four defeats in a row. Um, do you do you feel like they've, I mean, how much the defeats have been kind of one goal margin since then? And then obviously, Drew at Sheffield United haven't beat West Brom pretty comfortably. Do you, how much do you feel like they've improved since, since those opening few weeks? Massively. I, I think there is um, quite a lot of credit that actually needs to go to the squad, and in particular, Scott Parker. Um, the, at the start of the season, I think. We, I mean, we already we already knew that Fulham were coming into the season with you know kind of on the back foot, considering that um, they were the team with the like the smallest amount of of time to prepare for the Premier League season, and 
we knew that we were that it was a squad that weren't particularly um, capable enough. I think there was some remnants of something that was was there, but we knew that uh, the squad probably wasn't um, all there, and there was definitely not a lot of positions that they needed to fill in terms of quality. Um, so I think, but we were kind of unprepared for how much of a rude awakening it was um, as well. And we were kind of uh, there was a lot of animosity towards between fans and the hierarchy that they hadn't addressed the particular areas of, of the of the pitch that we needed to increase our quality and in particular the defense and that kind of showed with the before with the results that show uh, in the first sort of three or four games you know we lost uh three nil to arsenal we lost three nil to to lee uh, sorry four three to leeds lost three nil to aston villa there's a lot of goals shipped uh, within the you know the first few games but you know, with the additions coming in and the, the squad started to settle down a little bit, um, I think that the you know the results don't show it necessarily, but the performances are certainly increasing. Um, you know, for example, against West Ham in the last game, you know, although it was one nil and put, you know we definitely should have got a, should have got a draw if it wasn't for Lookman's um, hilarious penalty uh, attempt right at the death. Um, that should have been a point. I don't, it doesn't act. The result doesn't actually show the whole story of the game. I think Fulham were massively in that one, and you know, quite unfortunate to come away with no points. So the results don't necessarily show the entire story of the season so far. And uh, the the you know we are starting to trouble teams. The only problem is that I would say is that we're now actually coming into a run of games where we're not really expected to get anything from the you know Everton are obviously a very very well established team with quality running through the through the through the sides um and then after that we've got you know we're playing liverpool and man city coming up and leicester as well you know it's going to be a very very tough run of fixtures and i think that's the only thing that we we should really be worried about is that you know the first eight or nine games those are the times that we should have picked up the points against the teams that you'd expect us to be in and around not the evertons the leicesters the Liverpool's etc. Yeah. Does does this season feel different than two years ago when Fulham were up in the Premier League and they kind of went down without really much of a fight? Does this season feel different because of some of the things you've seen from the squad already and some of the I guess promising aspects of the squad? There's a quite a lot of thing there's quite a lot to it and I'll try and summarize it in the sense that there like the, the hierarchy wouldn't necessarily admit it, but there have been a lot of lessons learned from two years ago. I think because of uh, what happened back in 2018, that Fulham had this kind of air of, we were back where we belong. And because we'd been in the Premier League for quite some time, you know, for 13 seasons when they eventually got relegated, that, okay, we're just going back to where we belong. We're going to sort of get back to our sort of solid state in the Premier League and that just didn't happen you know splash the cash um, on players that were available that weren't necessarily right for the team whereas this time round and I think that the hierarchy you know have sort of looked at you know what mistakes they made last time and gone okay let's take stock of what happened and only in you know only sort of go you know strengthening areas that we really need to and I think the fans have really decided the expectation is certainly a lot lower this time around and I think that with Scott Parker at the helm I think there's a bit more of a reason head on it really sort of knowing what style of play we want to want to do 
altering it slightly depending upon what what team we're actually going to face and not actually have that arrogance that okay we're going to try and sort of have this style of play that we're going to sort of dominate the ball and trying to create as many opportunities as possible and that just really didn't work last time around whereas Scott Parker's thinking okay we're gonna have more measured sorts of play we know what our strengths and weaknesses are and we know what the strengths and weaknesses of the teams we're actually going to come up against and I think that that's kind of like you know sort of come to our strength a little bit and we're actually seeing it with better performances this time round. whereas last time round, it was almost like a very naive uh, way of sort of uh try and kind of try and sort of take on the premier league and i think one thing that's going for us i don't think that there's i don't think within the within the ownership there's not this kind of okay things are going bad for us the only thing that we're going to do about it is just get rid of the manager and try and do what has been you know, the cliched sort of thing of like, let's just try and panic by, let's try and panic get any manager in without actually thinking about it. You know, not actually talking to the squad because I feel like the squad are actually really behind Scott Parker, really buy into his his management style and the way he wants to set up his team. Um, so when the push comes to shove, they, you know, I think that they're actually going to be, let's try and have a bit more consistency this time around, um, especially with the management. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember when Fulham was up a couple of years ago, it felt like uh, it was very attacking. But when it came to defense, um, they were shaky at defense. And I think that, that there was, if I remember correctly, that was a large part of their downfall. Uh, but you're right. I think that, that it's looked a bit, little bit more um, controlled, a little bit more focused uh, this time around. Seeing what you've seen so far, obviously, you've talked to us about, you know, some of the promises, Scott Parker, the team being behind him. Um, and what you can um, expect moving forward, but also, of course, having to face some of these talented teams still uh, in the first half of the season. How optimistic can you be now that Fulham can stay up this season? Um, is, is there an optimism around the club and, and around its fans that, you know, this is a, a job that, you know, they can complete and, and they can stay up? I think if you asked the fan base seven games ago, they might have a different opinion. Um, but right now, I, I certainly feel there's an optimism. I think this time round, there are, with all due respect to the other teams there, I think there are weaker opposition in this league, unfortunately for them. And, you know, that shows the fact that Fulham have only picked up four points so far and they're outside the relegation zone. I think that says a lot about the league this year. I think there's an absolute, I think the chasm between the haves and the haves not is really starting to show in this Premier League season. And, that might work in Fulham's favour. Um, I also, I feel like if if there was one manager that Fulham have had in recent memory that could actually change the mentality from a losing club to a winning club, that is Scott Parker. I think it's really easy for a lot of teams to get stuck in a rut um, and sort of go with that. And, you know, Scott Parker, in his very, very short time as, as you know, relatively speaking, in, in his managerial career and with Fulham, that, you know, there have been some bad times, but they've been able to um, sort of make that turnaround. And we've seen that quite a few times, even in the, you know, two years that he's, he's been the manager. Um, and even now, I mean, it's very, very easy for a club just to continue losing, continue losing games and, try different things, try really experimental things to try and turn things around and it just hasn't worked. Slavisa Jakanovic a couple of years ago, he saw that his style wasn't working, as you correctly said, that they try to focus on, on attacking play and 
you know, tried to sort of outscore the opposition. And not only when we not scoring goals, we were shipping a lot of goals. And his only sort of way of trying to change that around was change to a completely defensive style, which totally didn't work as well. And that was the same when Claudio Ranieri took over. He decided to play very, very defensive football with not a very de- strong defensive team. It just it was a complete disaster. Um, this time round, I think Scott Parker's got um, he's got a bit more of a you know that I can't. He's got something about him that he can really demand a lot more from his players and sort of say like, hey, look, if you want to succeed, you're going to have to have to do this. You're going to have to do that, and we, you know you need to work harder at this. You need to work harder at that. I don't know whether it's to do with the support team. I think we've seen quite a lot of tactical uh, brilliance from from him, in particularly big games, like in the, in the player final game, it was it was a particular tactical masterclass. I think this time round, I f- I feel like we will have a more settled team. I do fear that behind the starting eleven there isn't a lot of strength. But I f- when when you're going into the last game against uh, West Ham, when you I remember I was you know sitting with a couple a couple of friends and we're actually looking at the starting lineup and they're going actually that looks like a Premier League quality team. You know we've got a a few players from la- from the championship season, probably our best players from from last year, and Mitrovic, Kearney, uh, Harrison, Reed, and that's a really good spine of the team. But then around that, we've actually brought in some really good good players around that. Um, you know, at Lookman looks, which obviously you might obviously already known about uh, from his early days. He's a really really special talent, and he's already made a, a huge impact to the to the club already by the penalty aside um you know uh frank sambo and Gisa was obviously there two years ago we already knew what a special player he was and thankful that he was able to come back after his very very success- successful loan spell at vrl last year when they finished fifth in in la liga and you know for for a, a, a center mid who's more sort of defensively minded to have i think he's in the top four of successful dribbles in the top five leagues in europe i think that shows what an amazing player he is and what he brings to this team and around that we've got uh, Mario Lamina who's obviously an excellent ball carrier managed to bring in Anthony Robinson who's a, who I think is potentially going to be a, a future star um, you know already an American international at quite a young age and you know there's there's quite a lot of of talent within the squad especially you know between the sticks now we've got a World Cup winner in Alphonse Ariola, right not many not many uh Clubs can actually, especially in the Premier League, could actually um, say that they have that. So I think that it's coming towards us. The, the worst thing that could happen is if the, we decide to, after these next run of games, decide to change manager and try and change the style because performances are getting better. Um, it's just, just need that little bit of extra luck to get a few more points on the board. I think um, it's quite interesting with Fulham because... The last two seasons they've been in the Premier League, they've been relegated and had three managers in, in each of them, didn't you? Um, sacked two of them twice, sacked two managers in both seasons. Um, but I mean, Fulham seemed quite, I guess, wedded to Scott Parker. I think he got a new contract before the start of the season as well, didn't he? So would you, um, I mean, unless things go absolutely catastrophically bad, would you would you stick with Scott Parker at least for this season or... Is there any part of you which would be tempted to maybe go for someone more like the Allardyce more if, if you needed saving for relegation um, just to kind of preserve your Premier League status? Or, would you, or, like I said, would you rather stick with Parker? 
well, I mean, maybe I'll turn that back to you as, as uh, considering yeah. you have experience with Allardyce. Yeah. Would you take Allardyce back to step <laughs> in the Premier League? I don't know. Um, well, he was me, we were 13th when he took over, so we didn't really need him, but um, <laughs> I suspect Fulham might be in a lower position than that if they sacked Scott Parker. Yeah, I mean, you, I think there was... If he was to leave, then it, wouldn't, it would be stupid not to consider a manager like Sam Allardyce. Personally speaking, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I just don't think there's a... It just doesn't work long-term for us. Um, that's, that's why, personally speaking, again, I would say that... And I would have said this four games ago, nine games ago. I would have said this if Fulham didn't get promoted at the end of last season. I would keep Scott Parker long-term. I've seen enough about him already to suggest that um, he has a lot of potential. And I want Fulham to be a club that, you know, builds up uh, a legacy. And that comes from keeping the same, you know, same core of players over a long period of time. That, that stems from keeping a manager over a long period of time. Yes, he doesn't have the experience, but I'm happy for Fulham to give him that experience and give him that grounding. And, you know, therefore you can build up the status of legendary managers. You don't get situations where you're just a club that has players and has managers and, you know, you're kind of like this transient club. And, you know, I just don't think that builds up a long-term vision and a longevity that a club like Fulham really, really needs. You know, I don't want to be a yo-yo club. I don't want, I don't want Fulham that, I don't want Fulham to be a club where, good players come to as a stepping stone to other clubs. Yes, that obviously works with certain situations. I just don't want that for them to be. I'm not speaking for the whole fan base here. Other fan bases want to want instant success. And, um, you know, certain fans would think, no, I think now's the time to get rid of Scott Parker and bring in a, a more experienced head to try and, you know, keep stay up this year and try and solidify the position now. I just fear that that's not, that's not going to be conducive of, of what is stability and especially if the case of a new manager comes in they try and keep up keep uh, Fulham up with this particular squad they do and then at the end of the season they decide okay now this is how I want Fulham to be next season and that might involve getting rid of five six seven players that we like and then bringing in another eight or nine expensive players and in this in this kind of world in this kind of economic situation is that sustainable for, for a club's Fulham size? I don't think so, regardless of the fact that who the owner is. Yes, we do have an, a, you know, a vastly, vastly rich owner at the helm, but that doesn't mean it's an endless pot of money. What happens is if he decides, well, I'm going to sell up and I'm going to stop investing, as we've seen with many clubs, especially in Fulham size and bigger, it could spell disaster for the football club. It, you know, too many times have we seen clubs just have their owners stop investing because they want to sell up and then eventually they start toppling down the leagues and then it's a really sad state of affairs for 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 quite some time. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned longevity and obviously you've already talked about uh, Demola Lookman and Anthony Robinson, two former Everton players. Um, and, and you've obviously, you know, you've, you've spoken pretty highly of them. Um, I guess, you know, one of the things I would ask about them in terms of how they've been for you guys Ademo Lookman, we're not really sure why he wasn't able to make it at Everton. Um, obviously, you know, there were murmurs of possibly, you know, attitude or something like that. And maybe that's why he didn't make it at Everton and then didn't make it at RB Leipzig. Uh, but he seems to be playing pretty well for you guys. 
there. And then in terms of Anthony Robinson as an American, I've seen a lot of him play just for America, never mind um, playing for Everton a few times. I know he's been um, touted um, as a great offensive player, um, but in defense maybe has lacking some qualities. In those areas for those two players, what have you seen from them? Um, would you say that they're um, – the, I guess that the notion or belief about them is correct in what I just said, or um, kind of what is your point of view in seeing them play kind of regularly uh, over the past, you know, eight matches? Um, I mean, first and foremost, the fact that his um, nickname is Jedi, which means he's a big Star Wars fan. I'm, I'm already, I'm already hooked on him really. Um, speaking about his football qualities in particular, um, I think it's quite easy for a lot of people to see that, yes, he is an attacking fullback and therefore his defensive abilities might not be as strong but there's been nothing that I've seen that worry me in that regard. I mean, our other left back is Joe Bryant, who again is a, is quite an attacking fullback. I mean, he started his career out at Bristol city for a long time playing as a winger and he's a very capable winger as well. Um, but we've seen with Joe Bryant specifically in one-on-one situations up against a winger, he is quite weak. Um, and, you know, that's not to say he's a bad defender. It's just in that situation, he's, a, he's not as strong as he could be. Anthony Robinson, on the other hand, I, there's been nothing so far that really worries Matt about him defensively. Yeah, he's very good physically. He's, he's quite quick. Um, and I think that with the Scott Parker system, especially defensively, they try and limit times where the, the defenders are isolated one-on-one. So I haven't seen enough of him in that regard as yet um but again nothing to worry me in that regard attacking wise i think he's quite ambitious um his crossing ability is not as good maybe as joe bryan but i think that his passing he he's always trying to do one on um one to um, ones which work quite well um in the in the few games recently quite a lot of our attacking play does come down the left with Lookman in front of him. And, you know, when you've got those two coming down, if you're playing on the right-hand side against them, that's you're going to have a lot being asked of you that day. When you've got Lookman, who's excellent in one-on-one situations, you don't know whether he's going left, right, uh, jumping over you, uh, spinning you around, throwing it through your legs. And then you've also got the pace and attacking ability, the passing ability of, of behind him in, in Anthony Robinson as well. You're going to have a really tough day if you're, if you're up against them. Yeah. So... I've been pleased with what I've seen so far, and especially since that Anthony Robinson is still so young. We've got a long contract on him as well. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's an excellent buy buy from Fulham. The, the in the last game against West Ham, like I've said before, um, he was playing really really well for an hour or so, and there was a lot going through him, and he was firing a lot of balls into the box. He was asking a lot of questions of of, of the defence. I I did say I did think at the time. I would have at that time I would have brought Joe Bryan because his of his crossing ability. But that shows like the the sort of like where one one side of the pitch where Fulham might have actually a little bit, you know, strength and depth about them. But at the moment I just don't I don't see Robinson being ousted by Joe Bryan. And I think that's kind of shows how well he's doing so far this year. Yeah. I think um with with Lookman it's I think Fulham is probably a better fit for him than Everton because I think he seems like the kind of player who needs a lot of love and I don't think I think Everton fans certainly rated him and supported him, but I think um kind of maybe outshone Everton by people like Richarlison. Um 
and maybe like Dominic Calvert-Lewin to a lesser extent, um, Bernard, people like that, people you know, wingers, um, who is obviously where he wants to play and didn't maybe get the same. I think with Fulham, he's maybe more like he's kind of not the main man, but he's more of a, like a focal point in Fulham's attacks than he maybe ever was at Evan. Uh, and there was a lot of things about him being home. Just little things as well, like people, rumours going around that he was homesick and I know he's from London, so even that might, you know, help his, help his development while he's on loan at Fulham. Well. Yeah, I, I think that with Lookman specifically, when he was at Everton, I think, I can't remember exactly who was, who was at the helm, but it, it seemed like, what was it, three or four years ago, there was a bit of flex around the, around the management, you know, you had Ronald Koeman and, um, you know, maybe well, that was around. Ronald Koeman, bought him. Ronald Koeman bought him, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, but you're quite right. Like you just named three players there who was um, not necessarily dominant Calvert-Lewin, but certainly Bernard and, you know, Sigurdsson was playing out on the left as well for a time, which was bizarre because we know that how effective he is uh, in the centre positions. But I think when you, when you're a club like that and um, when you're trying to get success, you need that balance of kind of like, you know, instant success versus long-term vision. And you, or, you know, do you want results now? Would you result, you want results in two or three years time? That That's a very fine balance to come across. And that's when players like Adamola Lookman might be actually overlooked because, you know, he was really young. and You could see his talent. You can see, you could see what he could do and where his potential might be in three years' time, but he just wasn't getting the opportunities. And he must have thought when, you know, when RB Leipzig come, come along, it's a difficult move for him to, tur- you know, to turn down. The thing is, though, he's moving to a club at the time that had Timo Werner and, uh, and Cuckoo and other players like that who, you know, it's, they're, they're, they've got some dearth of attacking talent, especially on, on the wide areas. You know, things have changed a little bit, a little bit now, but... I think Fulham is probably right place, right time for him. Um, a place for him that he is going to be loved. A place where he is going to get a lot of game time. Um, you know, it's, I don't want to say a big fish, small pond, but he is certainly going to shine in a team that doesn't have a huge amount of talent in it. And, you know, he's, he's going to give, he's going to get his chance to express himself and try and create as much as possible. And I think he's already done that in the few games that we've seen already in. Is there anyone else then that you would look at and think they can they have the potential to cause Everton the most problems? I know Mitrovic is kind of the obvious one, but he's, he's had a bit of a drought lately. I think he got the two assists in the, in the West Brom game. But, mm. um, yeah. Is there anyone else you'd look at and think they, they could hurt Everton particularly? Um, I mean, Tom Kearney, there was a lot of question marks over him coming into the season. And then he hasn't really been at his, he wasn't really at his best in the first few games. And there was a lot of there was a lot of talk within the fan base about whether his time has been spent and he doesn't really fit into the system. And then he played when it, against West Brom a couple of games ago. He was unbelievable. I mean, you, you would never think that there was any question marks about his future against West Ham. Similarly, he was brilliant as well. Um, unfortunately, the result didn't didn't go our way. But you know, now he's now the system is sort of settled. Now the starting eleven has sort of settled and. He's kind of solidified, you know, the club captain has really solidified his, his place in this team. He's starting to flourish. And Scott Parker spoke after the West Brom game about how he just demanded from him to just to be more relaxed about the way he wants to play and be more, be more ambitious on the ball. And that's what, that's what he's showing. 
he is one of the, I would definitely say one of the best players in the Premier League at hanging on to the ball and recycling that ball. He very, very rarely, he very rarely loses it, which is quite a, which is quite an amazing thing for, for a player playing this position when there's a lot of tight space, there's a lot of excellent um, midfielders and defenders trying to get the ball off him and he, he rarely loses it and something always happens when he's, when he's on the ball, so look out for it. The other one I would, would say is um, Deco Dover-Reed, who, again, people question his talent, but he started to sort of get a bit more confidence again. He probably should have come away with a goal against West Ham if he, if he, um, if he struck his shot better because he created a, an excellent opportunity for himself. Um, he's a very lively player. Um, he's a bit of a mixed bag. He plays off the right at the moment, but sort of drifts in and out, and he, he likes to get in and around. And he's, he's, he's actually scored quite a few goals this year, which we didn't think was, was possible from him. So I think there is, there is potential to cause harm, but you know, we don't, at the moment, there's a little bit, of, little bit of worry about which Fulham team is going to come across, especially with Mitrovic slightly off form. He has started to come, get better, that's for sure. Can I just ask you quickly about Mitrovic? I find Mitrovic a really interesting player. I really like him. I think I'd, potentially, I'd probably have him at Everton. I think he's all right. I like his kind of attitude as well as you know how prolific he was for certain the championship. Um, do you think? I mean, he scored eleven goals I think last time, which I think would suggest he maybe is good enough. But is do you have any doubts as to whether he's like he can cut it in the Premier League, or um, do you think he's certainly good enough to be? like a top-level striker? I think if he was playing, it depends on what team he's playing for, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got one real out-and-out striker in, in the entire squad, and that's Mitrovic. And he's certainly shown in, in his, well, relatively short career, like how, how good he is and he can get goals. Um, he, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't say he's a confidence player. I wouldn't say that he's going to create something from nothing. But, you know, sometimes you don't know what you're going to get from him. And he does score all ranges of goals, which you would think he's, you know, considering he's a bit of bully for other opposition defenders, and whatnot, you'd think he'd only score, you know, bullet headers or, or tap-ins or whatnot. He does score all ranges of different goals, which is, can be quite surprising. Um, I think in this team, uh, especially settled, and we know that we're going to be playing with Mitrovic and Scott Parker and the management team aren't stupid. They know what type of player they've got up, up top. He's not a player that's going to break the offside trap, for example, and run away from, run away from defenders and slot it past the keeper. He's not that type of player. Um, there is more and more of the build-up play in him. I think, I think he is actually quite technically gifted. I think... The, because of his physicality, I think people neglect the fact that he is actually, a very, you know, a very good football a footballer with a ball at ball at his feet, um, and he does cause he does obviously cause problems for opposition defenders. And I think that kind of build-up play gets lost within the stats when you actually look at him and go, oh, he's only scored twice this year, therefore maybe he's not actually doing he's not actually playing well enough for the club. Um, there's no risk of him losing his, his place in the team, that's for sure, unless he really has a proper dip in form. Uh, but I don't think he has that mentality with him for him to become complacent. He's just not that sort of player, really. And I, nor, nor that Scott Parker would ever let that happen. Um, all he ever wants to do is score goals and win. So uh, that's, that's all he cares about. That's all he wants to do. He really wants to fight for the win. He wants to fight for goals. 
he will try his utmost to to do as much as he can for the team. He'll run his guts out and everything. So that's why he's such a firm fan favourite, really. The only thing is, is that I wish he'd be better at penalties. Um, and I wish, he'd, I wish he'd be more confident about hitting the ball first or first time. The amount of times he gets the ball in the box. And um, he, de- he dithers on the ball a little bit and then takes a, takes a shot. And... Um, the defender gets a block on it. I think I saw, I think I was like doing a little bit, a little bit of like, I've delved down into like a bit of an internet black hole and he actually had the most block shots in the, uh, um, in the championship last season, which was actually quite surprising. Um, and I think already this year, I think him and Mo Salah have got the most block shots in the Premier League too, which I found quite surprising too. So I think that kind of shows that he does have the confidence to score goals. He does have the ability, but man, I wish he'd show it more often really. Well, I mean, yeah, like you mentioned his attitude. That's always, you know, you always want a player on, on your team who is going to go out there, going to want to, you know, be goal-minded, be, you know, be looking for the goal any chance he can get. Um, and, of course, you always want people on your team who think they can, then w- they can win and then want to win every single match. But my question is his attitude, uh, the attitude of the team, is it enough to lead Fulham to victory this weekend? What's your prediction, um, you know, for, for next Sunday? Um, what I don't want to happen is what happened in the in the reverse fixture, not the two nil victory, but the three nil yeah. loss uh, at Goodison Park. I remember I'm still a little bit played well that game. Sorry, yeah, Fulham played really well that game. I yeah, think. especially in the first half. Like I think Fulham had like three or four really good opportunities. Sessegnon hit the bar, um, and I remember like things. Yeah, and at the end of that, at the end of them. End of the first half, I, I was just like, oh my God, we're going to lose this game because they should be three or four nil up. And yeah, it was it was a whitewash straight in the second half. And that's what I not want to happen. Not like that could happen. I think the way this team are, Fulham tend to have, tend to have like three or four really good opportunities a game and not put a single one of them away and come away losing. Um, we do have to be more clinical. Um, and... The difference is this year is that I think that we're coming up against a better Everton team this time around as well, um, especially defensively. I think Everton have picked up a diamond in Ben Godfrey. I've been banging his drum to get him in to Fulham and then obviously Everton decides to spend bash the cash on him and I think you've got an absolute gem there. Um, he might not show it straight away, but you know he's, he's going to be very, very good. Um, the, so I think Fulham can get a result. This team are improving. The only thing is that I don't know what injuries are going to come back from the international break. No one seems to know what's happening, especially with COVID, mixing with different different support bubbles and whatnot. Who knows what, what the injury situation is like. Um, Fulham only have only have one injury at the moment uh, from a potential starting, starting 11 player, which is Kenny Tete, who's an excellent, excellent purchase. He, he was excellent showing in the two games that we've seen him so far. So, Hopefully he's back now. I think if Fulham are at their full strength, I think they are certainly capable of causing Everton problems and they could come away with a 1-0 victory, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, I, I, if we're being honest, I, I think that Everton will give up a couple goals, maybe, um, just because the defense has been a little shaky recently. It kind of depends on who we tried out there. If we tried out Holgate again and Holgate's not fit, that'll be... An interesting, an interesting thing for sure. But um, 
Matthew, anything else to add? If you want to add your prediction in as well, um, you know, anything else uh, on, on Fulham or that you want to ask about? I think it, I think it'll be a draw this one. I think um, I think I don't know. I think it's all a lot better defensively, haven't they? So um, I don't think it will be like a really high scoring game. I think maybe one one because I think I think you know we haven't looked particularly good at Virginia lately. So um, I mean, Richardson back will be a, be a big boost for Everton, but I think. Um, it's quite it's quite hard to have faith in Everton to win these kind of games when you see us, you know, perform so poorly away at Southampton and Newcastle last few weeks, isn't it? So, um, I think it's a tougher game than people maybe giving giving it credit for. I think Fulham will you know, be stiffer opposition than I think most people think. Um, and if nothing else, our record at Craven Cottage is absolutely terrible. So <laughs> I think it's like Fulham have never won at Goodison and never have won like once at Craven Cottage, isn't it? So. Um, mm. I think <laughs> <laughs> field advantage at its best. <laughs> yeah, no, I never confident about going to Fulham. Um, so yeah, I think I'll go for draw this one. Yeah, I mean, my personal opinion is if Everton are going to win this game, it probably, I feel like it kind of has to be high scoring. I, I don't know. I just don't trust the Everton defense at the current moment. And if Seamus Coleman isn't ready to go for uh, for for Sunday, as we're probably expecting, because he was re- recalled from the the Ireland national team due to a recurrence of the, uh, the injury, the hamstring injury. Um, I mean, just from the sounds of it, it sounds like John Joe Kenny's going to have his hands full with, uh, with a Lookman and, and, uh, and Anthony Robinson down that, that left side. So um, it'll be interesting. Um, I don't know. It's, it's hard to predict these games because Everton have been so good at some points. They've been really poor at other points where Charleston coming back obviously adds something to it. Um, I don't know. I'm, I I think probably a draw, and if Everton win, it'll be like you know. I think the draw maybe two two. If Everton are going to win, it, it would be three two or something like that. Um, but we'll see. Um, Farrell, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you coming on and giving us insight into Fulham. No problem at all. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Absolutely, absolutely, Matthew. Thank you as always for uh, joining me and to listeners out there. Thank you for listening. Um, we, you know, we hope you subscribe, download, follow, um, so you can keep getting those episodes each and every time they come out. Um, but that's it for right now. We'll talk to you guys next week.